go ahead and dismiss our children at this time to go to children's church. And one of the chief tools that the enemy uses to paralyze children of God is guilt and shame. We have moments of sin, moments of disobedience, moments of failure in our lives, and we're riddled with guilt, we're riddled with shame, we're riddled with, with the sense of, of failure. Look at what I've done. Look at who I've hurt. Paul wrestled with these same thoughts in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, not only did He pay the penalty for our sin, but He removed from us the power of sin over our lives. And so we can sing, worthy is the Lamb, knowing that God, God the Father, who is indeed holy, 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 Isaiah 6 says, in the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple, and, and there were above Him seraphim, and there were, had six wings, with two they flew, with two they covered their feet, and with two they covered their eyes. And they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as they sang, God is holy, holy, holy. That is just a, a glimpse into the picture of the holiness of God. And that holy God looks upon us His children, not with ridicule, not with shame, not with disappointment, but He looks upon us with glowing eyes. He looks upon us with adoration. Why? Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is worthy of our praise, and we are covered with His righteousness, and we are imputed His righteousness, and so worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And so we don't have to be shackled with guilt and shame. But we are those who have been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. Well, that was free. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 1. <coughs> I'll preach so long as my voice will allow me. If the Holy Spirit wants us to have a short sermon this morning, uh, my voice will go out relatively soon. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Amenadab, and to Amenadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz... And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse. 
And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat, Joram, and to Joram, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham, Ahaz, and to Ahaz, Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh, Amon, and to Amon, Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconi, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon, and after the deportation of Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shiltiel, and to Shiltiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and to Abiud Eliakim, and to Eliakim Azor, and to Azor was born Zodak, and to Zodak Akim, and to Akim Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar Matan, and to Matan Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Therefore all of the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they became together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this journey through the book of Matthew, Lord, may you consecrate this time. May you set it apart for your purpose and your glory. May everything that is said from this pulpit be in complete concert with your word. Lord, may you speak to your children this morning. Your word says that through the foolishness of the message preached, you chose to save some. Save those who would believe. Lord, this morning, may you use this broken vessel for your glory. May you speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as many of you are here this morning, and you read those passages with me, and you got to the end of that passage, and you said, I'm so glad God speaks through, through such a wonderful uh, uh, Holy Spirit-anointed text, right? Uh, you, you, you got through those, those names, and, and the reality is, is that, preacher, I'm doing good to pronounce half those names, let alone even understand what they mean. Well, let us, let us, before we jump into the text, uh, we would do right to, to take a, a, a brief moment and to get a little bit of background on uh, the book of Matthew. Anytime we begin studying a book, we begin studying a passage, it's important for us to understand the context in which that passage was written because any text of scripture has one and only one meaning. It was written by one author to one audience for a particular purpose. And in order for us to glean what it is that God would have for us to hear in 2015, we must understand what the original author intended his original audience to understand and to glean from that passage. And then we can then take application and extract biblical principle from those texts. Matthew is in our Bibles the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's important to note that throughout the early church, 
uh, many of your local churches only had one gospel, either Matthew or Luke, probably not John. Well, why would they not have Mark, preacher? Well, because the book of Mark, the vast majority of the book of Mark and its content is found in either the book of Matthew or the book of Luke. Matthew and Luke were written probably around the same time, give or take 10 years, probably around 70 to 80 A.D. The book of Mark was probably written somewhere around 40 to 50 A.D. So it's very possible and very probable that the book of Matthew, the author of Matthew, and the author of Luke used the book of Mark as a reference. Not because they weren't there and didn't realize what was going on, but just, just as a reference, just to... to to use and to, uh, to compare some of their notes. And, and, and so the book of Matthew and the book of Luke probably use the book of Mark as a reference. Therefore, if you're in the ancient world and you're, you, you're gathering for yourselves a library of, of written material, we understand that in the ancient world, written material was very, very valuable. People didn't have books. There was not bookshelves in people's homes. In fact, most of the most of the uh, the old uh, in the ancient world, most of the texts were con- contained on a scroll, and and so to to un- to unwind that scroll and to read that text, uh, and it was very valuable. It took uh, many scribes and many uh, authors uh, a very long time to pen this stuff. It was very valuable. Paper was very valuable, and so they didn't have a lot. They weren't, didn't have a lot of access to this information. Not only that. It cost a lot of money. And most people in the early church were not very wealthy. Well, probably because as they became Christians, they became ostracized by the world. They oftentimes were boycotted by, uh, by the other people, uh, the other pagans in their society, in their culture. And so oftentimes they lost their job. Uh, their businesses suffered greatly. And so the church wasn't full of a lot of affluent people. That being said, they didn't have a lot of access to the New Testament. They didn't have a lot of access to these, to these writings. That's why Paul began, and he began whenever he, would go into the, whenever he would go into these cities, he would begin in the synagogues because at least they had a starting point. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophecies about Jesus. So all that being said, the book of Matthew is one of the earliest writings of the New Testament. Uh, it's dated probably around 70 A.D., I want to point out, uh, we have a quote from the uh, origin, one of the church, early church fathers. From, he was lived around 185 to 254. And he says this, Among the four Gospels, which are the only undisputed ones of the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was prepared for the converts from Judaism. There's a couple of things that we can glean from this, uh, from this quote from Origen. One, the book of Matthew dates back to the earliest of Christianity. And he says there are how many Gospels? Four. So as early as the second century, as early as the second century, there was a definitive number of Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not Thomas, not the Gospel of Mary, not the gospel of Barnabas, there are four. We see this as early as the second century. So when the History Channel runs their special on the lost gospel, you can remind them that as early as the second century, we have definitive evidence that the early church 
only gave credibility to four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so they can dig up all of the experts that they want to say, but we can go back to evidence from the earliest manuscripts of the early church that there were four Gospels. In addition, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets more than any of the other New Testament Gospels. What does this tell us? This tells us, Origen's quote tells us, who was Matthew written to? Go back to the quote, uh, Brother Chris. The very bottom here, it says that it was prepared for the converts from Judaism. Where did Paul begin when he went into the, uh, when he went into the cities? He began in the synagogues. Why? They had, a, they had a, a, a base. They had a place from which to start. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the law. They knew that God had promised a Messiah. And so he begins there. And there were those who were converted unto Judaism. And so Matthew writes his gospel. Matthew writes his gospel to those Jewish converts. That being said, Matthew has more Old Testament quotes from the prophets than any other New Testament book. In addition, Matthew uses the words and uses the phrase kingdom of heaven more than any other book in the Bible. In fact, Matthew is the only book in the Bible to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. Every other New Testament author, Paul, as well as Luke, as well as Mark, refers to the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of God. Why would Matthew... A Jewish, audience, a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience referred to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven because he knows he's writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jews have such a high reverence for the name of God that they would not write the name of God nor pronounce the name of God. So Matthew, in an effort to resonate with his Jewish audience, does not refer to it as the kingdom of God, but rather the kingdom of heaven. Same connotation, but he wants to be sensitive to the audience to which he's writing. Additionally, Matthew was written by Matthew, who is a tax collector. Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. This is the only place in all of the Gospels, the only place in all of Scripture, where we're told Matthew's occupation. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew. Why would Matthew give us this information about himself? Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas... And Matthew, the tax gatherer, he doesn't give us Philip's occupation, Bartholomew's occupation, nor Thomas's occupation, but he gives us his occupation. Why? An aspect of humility. Matthew, a tax gatherer, somebody who was once a publican, somebody who was once hated, is now a disciple of God. If you're going to write an audience, write a gospel, write a book, and you're going to give it an author, that's going to have credibility and going to to have uh, validity amongst the Jewish people. Of all of the disciples, the least likely would be Matthew. He was a hated publican, a tax gatherer. You would pick Judas, a Judean, somebody who was was well-read, well-known. You would pick somebody who was well-respected in somebody like Nathaniel. A Jew from whom there is no guile. You wouldn't pick Matthew, a hated tax gatherer, which gives even more credibility to the authentic authorship of the book of Matthew. All that being said, let us get to the text. Matthew chapter 1. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want us to point out as Matthew begins, he does not begin, this is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who Jesus was. That was his earthly title. But how does he begin? This is the record of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew will all throughout the gospel will use this title for Jesus, the son of David. Jesus actually means in the Greek, Jesus is the Greek form of the word of the name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And so what we have, what we have, this is the record of genealogy, the Lord's salvation from the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David and the son of Abraham call the Jewish audience back to the promise, the Abrahamic promise, the Davidic promise. It calls them back to the promise of the Old Testament. This is the record of the genealogy, the Lord's salvation from his anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It lays the groundwork saying that this Jesus is the Messiah, the king whom God had promised. Throughout the book of Matthew, throughout the book of Matthew, there is going to be certain thematic emphasis that we will see. The first of which is going to be a constant conflict between the Pharisees. Now we have to understand where this comes from and and what this this is birthed out of. After the Babylonian conquest and after the exile uh, of the Israelites, we have to remember for the Jewish people, there were three major aspects of faith in their life. The first major aspect of faith in their life was the land that God had promised them. Remember the very first covenant that God gave to Abraham, to the the children of Israel? He said, I'm going to give you a place, I'm going to give you a land, and it's going to be from from this point to this point, and this point to this point, and this is going to be your inheritance. for For Israel, for the nation of Israel, there were three major pillars on which their faith resided. One was the land. The second was the temple, the house of God, the place where the presence of God dwelled. And the third was the law of God, the place that that which God communicated to them, this will be the source of your blessings, this will be the source of, of all that I will give you. So we have three pillars of the faith for Israel. We have the pillar of the law, pillar of the land, and the pillar of the temple. And so when Israel... When Israel is conquered by the Babylonians, two of those pillars are completely done away with. The Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple. And then they drive Israel out of the land. And so all Israel is left with is the law. And so from 587 B.C. until the time of Jesus, there is over 500 years where all Israel has to focus on, all they have left, is the law. And so what they do is they put an extraordinary emphasis on the one thing that they have left, and that's the law. And so the rabbis and the teachers, they begin saying, we know in the law it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, let me elaborate on what God meant by remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they begin to to write all of these rabbinical laws and these, these 
extra things to the law that says what God meant when he said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is we can't work on the Sabbath day. Well, what does it mean to work? Well, it means if you, if you travel X amount of miles, you travel X amount of, of you do, if, if you do lift this much weight, if you, if you do, you plant this much in your garden, then that's considered work. And so they begin to elaborate on God's law. And there was this, this growing emphasis on the law because that's all they had left. And so what we see throughout the book of Matthew is there's going to be this conflict between Jesus and this emphasis on the law. But remember, it's in Matthew's gospel where we see Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled in me. And so Jesus is, to the Jewish audience, we see Jesus not as the, not as the, abolitionist of the law but as the fulfillment of the law additionally we will see a theme of jesus being rejected as the messiah he'll be rejected as the messiah by the jews he'll be rejected as the messiah by the pharisees he'll be rejected as messiah by the sadducees he will be rejected as the anointed one of god this will be a theme that we'll see throughout the book of matthew Go back to verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Even though Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, I want to point out a couple of things. Verse 3, to Judah were born Perez and Zerah, by whom? Tamar. If you remember Genesis chapter 38, Tamar is a Canaanite. In the lineage of Jesus is this Canaanite woman who was taken advantage of by her father-in-law who was treated as a, as a common harlot, a common prostitute. And then if that weren't enough, you get to verse 5. And to Salmon was born Boaz, by whom? Rahab. Who is Rahab? Rahab is the prostitute who lived in the wall, who gave refuge to the spies, in Jericho and if that weren't enough just in that exact same verse chapter 5 and to Rahab I'm sorry to Boaz was born Obed by whom Ruth who is Ruth Ruth is a Moabite a Moabite by definition was an enemy of God and here was this Moabite woman whom God had once viewed as her enemy had now become redeemed and now become a an heir to the throne of God. And if that weren't enough, we get to verse 6. And to Jesse was born David, the king. And to David was born Solomon. By whom? By her who had been the wife of Uriah. A woman whom was taken in adultery and her husband was killed. Matthew absolutely traces the royal roots of Jesus, but it speaks from the very beginning to the work of divine grace. That from the very beginning, God intended to give grace to those who did not deserve it. From the very beginning, even in royalty, 
even in the royal lineage of Jesus, as he is presenting, as Matthew is presenting Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the king who is worthy, who sits on his throne, who is anointed by God, who is the promised Messiah, he speaks of the work of divine grace. The Canaanite, the prostitute, the Moabite, the victim of adultery. God speaks of divine grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. We see this wonderful exposition of Paul. And the law came that transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There are some of us here this morning. And we are indeed here. And we believe That our actions, our deeds, our life, our decisions, that we're beyond the grace of God. That we're beyond His, His loving kindness. That, that we deserve the shame and the guilt that we're living with. In the genealogy of Jesus, as Matthew is give, making the case for the King of Kings, the promised one of Israel, he reminds us that there is never a time whenever we are beyond the grace of God. That there is never a time in your life whenever you have done X, Y, or Z that, that disqualifies you from the grace of God. That disqualifies you from the forgiveness of God. That disqualifies you from being grafted in as an heir to the king as an adopted heir to the throne. There is nothing that disqualifies you from the promises of God. Verse 16, John, um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, I want us to understand <clears throat> Matthew's genealogy follows the lineage of Joseph. And the reason Matthew's, Matthew's lineage follows the lineage of Joseph is because the royal heir would have to come through the male. The royal, the, the royal line must be descended through the man. It must be descended through the husband, the father. And so the royal lineage of Jesus traces the the line the royal line back through joseph but what i want to point out what i want to point out is the verbs that are used here in matthew chapter 16 comparatively to the verbs that are used through matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 now just stay with me i promise it'll make sense just stay with me matthew chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through verse 15 uses the verb begat or was born to and it uses it in the aorist tense, which means, that, which means that the antecedent or the modifier of the verb is, is in the past tense. Preston begat Daniel. He is my kid, 
I am the one who, who, who gave birth to that child. No, I actually didn't give birth to that child. It is my wife who gave birth to that child. But we understand that that's the nature of the language, that this child is a direct descendant of this individual. However, in verse 16, the verb changes tense. It goes from the aorist tense, which is the past tense, of he begat, Abraham begat, Jacob begat, so-and-so. It changes to the passive tense. And notice, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Everything else, the child was, or the, the father begat the child. In this one, the child was born to the mother. You see the change? It's a subtle difference. It's a subtle difference, but in verses 1 through 15, the father begat the son. In verse 16, the son was born to the mother. Nowhere else in this lineage do we see that construction. And that's important. Why? Because through Joseph, just like through every other man, would have come the nature of sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So then, as through one, as through Adam, there resulted transgression, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life to all men. Adam transgressed the law of God. And because of that, Romans chapter 5 tells us that the curse of sin, the nature of sin, was passed from generation to generation to generation to generation. That's why you don't have to teach your kids to lie. That's why you don't have to teach your kids to cheat. That's why you don't have to teach your kids to steal. You didn't have to send them to Liars 101 when they turned two. They are, they're born knowing how to do that. At six months old, at six months old, we tell Daniel, don't, we, we had this ficus tree in our, in our den. Does anybody, do, do, we, do we still have ficus trees? We had this ficus tree, and, and at six months old, Daniel just learned how to crawl, and he was enamored with this tree. And so he would go over to the tree, and we'd say, no, leave the tree alone. We'd pick him up, and we'd move him. He'd go to the tree, we'd say, no, we'd pick him up, and we'd move him. Well, we had set him down on the floor, he's playing with his toys, and we had told him two or three times, don't go by the tree. And as soon as we walked out into the kitchen, he looked around, he saw we weren't there, and he made a beeline to that tree. Well, we heard this giant commotion. We come back in, and there's Daniel sitting in the middle of the tree as it's laying down on top of him. At six months old, we didn't have to teach him to be disobedient because the nature of sin was already in him. As soon as he was able to talk, he began to, to, to lie, and he began to deceive. Why? Because through the through the lineage of man, through Adam, sin is passed down from one generation to generation to generation. In verse 16, Jesus was not conceived of Adam. He was not conceived of Joseph. He was born to Mary. Yet the husband of Joseph. And because of 
because of the law, the legal law of Judaism, as an adopted son, he would receive all rights and privileges therein as the heir to everything that Joseph had, including his royal line. But what he did not receive was the sin nature that he would have gotten were he conceived by Joseph. That subtle difference in the verb, that subtle difference from the past tense to the passive voice in the verb gives us so much of the grace of God. That God in his omnipotent grace sent us a Savior who was not plagued with the nature of sin but was free from the nature of sin. He was not the literal offspring of Joseph, but he was the legal heir of Joseph. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the very righteousness of God. The beautiful picture of the gospel is God made a way so that sinners, liars, cheats, just like every one of us, no one had to teach us to lie, just like we didn't teach our children to lie. That's the easy part. We have to be taught to do what's right. And even in doing what's right, Isaiah says our righteousness are as filthy rags. That even the good that we do is not good enough for the righteous requirements of the law. But God solved that problem with the fulfillment of Jesus. That Jesus came to completely fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That if we would place our faith and trust in Jesus, in everything that he has done, that we might have eternal life. That's the message of the gospel, that we can never be good enough, but that Jesus was good enough on our behalf. And this morning, you may be here. You may be riddled with with sin and shame and guilt. Thinking, preacher, I'm I'm never going to be able to get my life right. I'm never going to be able to fix my relationships. My marriage is, is in shambles. My children hate me. I'm a jerk. I'm I'm constantly constantly ugly and, and, and treat those who love me the most like garbage. I, I'm 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 a wreck. Jesus said, All those who are weary, come to me, and I'll give you rest. The message of the gospel is that you're absolutely right. You can't do it. You can't fix your life. That's why God sent Jesus. That if we'd place our faith and our trust in Him, that God could begin to take that which was broken, that which was mangled, that which was perverted and twisted by sin, and He could begin to fix it. Through grace, through love, and through mercy. This morning, If you need your life to be fixed, come to Jesus. God made him who knew no sin. 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. For God so God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is indeed death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are those of you this morning who've trusted Jesus. You've trusted Jesus as your Savior. You know that He's your Lord. But your life has been been marked with with disobedience. Your life has been marked with, with unfaithfulness. And this morning, God is calling you to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus because He is King. Or maybe God's calling you simply to become a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. Whatever it is that the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, in just a few moments we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And as we sing, may you respond to the Holy Spirit this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus completely fulfilled everything that we couldn't. We thank you that in Jesus, that in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. In Jesus, we have the promised. We have the promise of a relationship with God the Father. That in Jesus, that in Jesus we're accepted. In Jesus we're loved. In Jesus we are forgiven and righteous. Some of you this morning who need to be in Jesus. Or some of you this morning whom you know God is calling you to serve here at Redeemer. May this day, this morning, be a time where you do business with God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.